This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. JP and I are virtual today with Tim Fazekas. Very excited to have him on board uh, for this mini-series. Tim uh, has served in the U.S. military. He's also served in the civilian world, and he can tie a lot of the parallels back to our world of neurosurgery here at home. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Um, Pleasure being on the show with you. Tim, why don't you tell us a little about yourself, where you grew up, what your education is, what you've been doing with your career? Okay. Well, um, I'm from Connecticut. Um, right out of high school, I went to the Marines. I served as an infantryman. Uh, upon my discharge, I ended up getting going to school to become a paramedic. I got hired by a fire department, spent 10 years as a firefighter paramedic, um, ended up getting hurt in the line of duty and retired medically. And I spent another 10 years working as a respiratory therapist. I have a degree in pulmonary cardiopulmonary science. Great. And and I understand you've been involved in educating the U.S. military as well on how to uh, train for casualties. And I wanted to, to draw attention to that because obviously for most of the, the healthcare providers listening, you know, they're not seeing a wartime action, but they see uh, wartime type casualties in urban and rural environments. And, you know, it, it I just remember training in L- L.A. County and, and JP, you are a Cook County, right? That's right. We cover Cook County uh, here in Chicago. Yeah. And now uh, I, I cover Jackson Memorial here in Miami. And so we see our, our fair share of violence and uh, firearm injuries. And it, it is a very, very special kind of a, a, a trauma, if you will. So, Tim, tell us about what it's been like, I mean, working as a paramedic, uh, the type of action you see in the city uh, and how that relates to uh, what you saw in, in the field. Sure. Um, there are two main cities that I worked as a paramedic in. It was Bridgeport and New Haven, Connecticut. And both those cities had a, a fairly high degree of uh, firearm violence. So we would get um, shootings pretty much uh, every weekend and sometimes during the week as well. Um, also stabbings. So um, this 10 year period I spent doing that, it, it just would not be uncommon to sometimes do two shootings a week. Yeah, it, it really is incredible. I mean, I, I think back to Mike Levy when he was at USC writing that paper on 1,000 consecutive gunshot wounds to the head. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, patients who are shot in the spine and they become paralyzed, they ask me about, you know, what's going to happen to them and, and are they ever going to walk again? Of course, you know, my answer often is, you know, these weapons, uh, whatever you think of them, they're really designed to kill uh, humans or animals, and, and the injuries are supposed to be uh, irreparably harmful. So we see absolutely tremendous, um, you know, gun violence here in Miami now. And as a neurosurgeon, you know, obviously we get called for the brain and spine work. Um, what what do you see in terms of the trends that are happening uh, in, in the nation? Do you see that this is something that's on the rise, or is it just something that we're hearing reported more and more? I think there are more cases of gun violence, but it's also... Um been so highly politicized that um, every occurrence is really used to one side's um, advantage. You know, Tim, it's really interesting. Um, You mentioned that among the cities you worked in Bridgeport, uh, just to throw this out there, my parents are from Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I've been there once. And certainly it's not not a large major urban area. And so I think for both myself and a lot of our listeners, when we think about penetrating trauma, gunshots and 
knife wounds, as you say, we think about these big cities and all the major trauma centers that Dr. Wang was uh, listing, but you don't as frequently think about some of the smaller towns and smaller communities around the country that also face this kind of violence day to day. Um, So I I wonder if you could cast your mind back to when you were working in Bridgeport or, or your time in New Haven, when you first come on a scene of one of these injuries, because um, we, we all in the medical community, we know the ABCs and the initial trauma survey and all these things. And we we're frequently taught the clinical aspect of things. But what's the decision making and, and the logistics like for once you've assessed, uh, stabilized a patient in the early phases and, and then your decision making about where to take them and where to go and, and which hospital do you take people? I've always wondered what that system is like. And, and so I wonder if you could talk through. Uh, what the process is like when it comes time to transport the patient from the field. Because I'm sure it's very different here uh, at home in the civilian setting when there's multiple hospitals versus uh, people and primary medics overseas who probably have a a nearby base and you know where you need to go. So uh, each of those cities, uh, I spoke about New Haven and Bridgeport, they both have one primary level one trauma center. It was Yale New Haven in New Haven, and it was Bridgeport Hospital, which was also owned by Yale New Haven in Bridgeport. Um, so those two hospitals had the highest um, you know, degree of care available. So those would be our um, locations of choice. There were other hospitals, but they were like level two centers, and we just generally would not take um, a gunshot victim to them unless it was uh, really not life-threatening. Um, when we initially would arrive on scene, one of the first things I kind of learned is you kind of want to make sure the police were there. One time we went to a reported shooting. Uh, it was like New Year's Eve. We got there first and people, you know, kind of shot towards our direction. So we kind of wow. skedaddled for a little bit until the police showed up. Um, but my my main thing is looking out for my crew's safety. Um, you sh- 99% of the time, the people were glad that you were there and, you know, didn't cause you any problems. Um, being able to get access to the patient. Um, at that time, we would do minimal care on scene and we would want to do most en route. Um, it was kind of like a scoop and go type thing. Um, we would do as much care as we could en route. Uh, some of the technology we had was less than what the military has developed during the last 20 years of war and uh, has now made its way into the civilian sector as well. Yeah, you know, that's very interesting you bring that up because obviously in wartime, you know, when you're trying to to collect and treat your wounded, you're constantly worried about, you know, enemy fire or or, or any other type of uh, adverse situations out there. But, you know, you don't think about that as much in a civilian situation, but we've heard of numerous situations now in America where you as the firefighter paramedic are yourself at risk, right? You're putting yourself at peril trying to rescue these victims. Um how do people react under that kind of pressure? I mean, it's got to be just in, for, for, for the uninitiated. I mean, you're initiated, but for the uninitiated, that must just be an absolutely um, uh, problematic psychological situation or trauma for the, for the rescuer, right? Well, so, yeah, I mean, we would at times sometimes go for shootings that involved juveniles, kids. That, that always is not something you kind of expect to see when you're in training. Um <laughs> Uh, also a lot of the victims, it's, you know, it's not like in the movies that it's a a bad guy and a bad guy that are having it out. No, very often it was, you know, just an innocent person that was in the wrong place at the wrong time and 
they'd get shot as well. You know, Tim, I, I wonder as, as, you know, we're rightly focusing on the victims and, and it's really interesting to kind of get in your head as you approach these scenes, um, planning and, and assessing and, and, you know, scoop and go. That's an interesting concept. But I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the effects of different classes of weapons, because we're, we're kind of talking in broad terms here about penetrating injuries, gunshots and stab wounds and everything. But there is a world of difference between, you know, a, a 22 caliber gunshot and uh, larger caliber weapons that might be seen exclusively in a military setting or as is, you know, as you pointed out, so politicized and controversial in the news these days as are being increasingly used in the civilian setting as well. So maybe for some of our listeners that are either early in school or even who are medical professionals, but really only see the people that make it to the hospital, maybe you could talk a little bit about the effects of the different sorts of weapons that all fall under the umbrella of uh, penetrating injuries or gunshot wounds. Okay. Um, so with the gunshots, um, if you remember from school, like uh, kinetic energy is mass times velocity squared. So the faster the projectile is going, it has a greater degree on the extent of damage it causes than the mass, which would be in relationship to the caliber. So pistols are generally low velocity, rifles are high velocity. Um, so whether it's a, a hunting rifle or if it's a military type rifle, they're going to cause similar type injuries when they, they hit a person. Um, pistol wounds were usually a small entrance and small exit. Uh, the rifle type rounds were usually a small entrance with a large blowout exit. Um, yeah, you know, knife, oh, sorry. sorry. Ahead, so, so we would have a considerable amount of stabbings. Um, sometimes it was just they'd get poked once and depends on where they hit them. And other times these we would see like people use machetes against each other and they were just all kind of cut up. Yeah, it, it, it really is interesting what JP is bringing up. I, I think most of the, the comprehensive neurosurgery textbooks have a chapter on um, firearm and stabbing injuries. And, and it's absolutely true that if you look at the effects of these different types of um, fuel munitions on, on the human body, it is tremendously different. Um, you know, when you're out there in the midst of, of trying to rescue folks and you're in a, a situation where there's uncertainty of violence, do you guys regularly call for police support? Do you carry, um, you know, uh, armor of any sort? What do you guys do to prepare yourselves? I mean, do you have a defense mechanism in those settings? So when the 911 calls in, you'll get dispatched along with the police. In terms of armor, we had um, body armor. But that was only for, like, if you were on, like, a SWAT-type, medic-type call-out. But that was when there was a known situation of, like, gun violence, whatever. The police are there, and they would have a, a, two of the medics go forward, um, kind of halfway between the, the hot zone where the police were and the cold zone where, you know, everyone else was staged. So we are kind of, like, in a warm area. Um, we would have body armor. But it was a soft-type armor, so any type of rifle round penetrate it, it would only be effective against the pistol. So that's I bet when you're rolling out. Yeah. So, so Tim, that that's perfect transition. Cause I, I bet when you're rolling into these situations, the people on your team were very happy to have a United States Marine with them. Right. So 
I, I wonder what was the, at least in the teams where you worked and the people you've trained, what's the background makeup of these crews? Is it common to have someone with military training experience like you did? Or was everybody thanking their lucky stars that the one Marine in, in your town happened to be with them that night? Uh, is it common to, to see people with combat training as well? So the, the reason I got stuck doing that was because I was the one with, although I'd never been in combat, I had been in combat arms in the Marine Corps. Um, so we would later on, um, we'd have other people. I found out that that was similarly why they were kind of uh, given that role too. We had um, Air Force Special Operations pararescue guys, and we'd have people that had been um, uh, in, uh, in the Army. Um, and... I don't know if it was now it's more of like they train you and you go through a formal tryout, but this was over 20 years ago. They just kind of picked who they wanted. And I'm sure it had something to do with that. We were all in the military. Got it. So, so when there was a shooting, you would get the call, but if grandma had a heart attack or uh, grandpa fell over at the movie theater, maybe one of the other teams would get dispatched for that. Oh, no, it was for the shootings. It was like the closest person. But like as in terms of like a formal, like they have the SWAT team going and they just want a certain crew to stand by because there's like a barricaded situation or there's, you know, whether it's a hostage type situation or there was like some guys robbed the bank and they're they're you know holding up in there. Um, that would be, you know, they, they sort of had some more time to develop who they wanted there versus just the 911 call for a, a shooting mm -hmm. victim. There, there was a, it's more of a distinction. So like a regular police officer responds when 911 is called. Uh, later on, when they can put together the SWAT team, then they kind of come together. So you, you may have like tiered type response. Yeah. So Tim, I have a couple friends who are local firefighter paramedics and, um, I have to say that the camaraderie and the culture they have together is really phenomenal. It does remind me a little bit about what happens in the military, but I'm, I'm always amazed because whenever we get together for a barbecue or whatever, he'll show me stuff. And, you know, of course, you know, I, I know that they're probably not supposed to do this, but there'll be pictures on his phone or pictures sent to him of like there, I can remember recently there was a, a worker who fell off of a cell phone tower and these cell towers are really high up. They're hundreds of feet up in the air and fell onto a metal object and was just impaled. And the pictures were, were absolutely um, phenomenally disturbing, if you will. And, you know, as a surgeon, you know, JP and I, you know, we're used to seeing a lot of blood and guts and, and, and some very unusual and disturbing uh, human anatomy in, in a distorted form. But I imagine a lot of folks that um, are involved in, in fire rescue paramedic work it's hard on them, right? It's hard to see that and then just go home and, you know, cook your dinner or go to a movie with your kids or whatever. What, what kind of support is out there for these folks? I mean, it seems like it, it would be very traumatic and there must be a lot of, um, I don't want to say PTSD, but a lot of psychological stress and, and even damage from that kind of work. So um, if it was just like routine uh, maintenance that you wanted for like in terms of mental health counseling uh, they had the employee assistance program if we went through a specifically critical type incident like we had a a family that the, it was like a mother and several young children and she purposely made them go in front of a train and, uh, and they all died mm -hmm. um then they would have counselors come to um you know where we worked and speak with us 
Wait, t- what what happened with that situation? That sounds horrific. Oh, yeah, so it was like suicide by train and she um had her kids with her too, so then they were younger kids and they all got taken out. This was like Fairfield Bridgeport line. Did she just she brought she brought her kids onto the train tracks with her? Yeah. Oh my, how old were they? They were like the youngest was probably like 3 and it's like 4, like all like really little kids like maybe the oldest were close to you know like a first grader type thing and i imagine they all died yes so so you you arrive at a scene like that i mean how does a how does a normal person um deal with that how does it how does a normal human being encounter that form of i don't want to call it um well let's call it horror it is real life horror and then just go back to their lives. Cause at least in neurosurgery, when we see things, we, we believe we're trying to help people. We're cutting their bodies open to fix them, to remove a tumor, clip an aneurysm, whatever, or fix their spines. But when you see something like that, you don't, it's hard to make sense of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, I don't know what would be worse is I've had children that I've worked on that have died. I've and I've also had ones that were like in, situation like that where there's obvious injuries incompatible with life um uh, it's uh when it happens it doesn't really have that much of an effect upon you it's more later on you just um try to utilize the you know the training experience you have that you're you're acting while you're there and it's almost surreal i can look back sometimes and um it didn't seem like it was real to me during the incident. And then later on you think about it and then it's like, you kind of, uh, you have a different appreciation for it after it, then it becomes real. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think anyone who is in a medical field or, or any field of life that deals with, um, horror is a good word. The, these extreme circumstances, can relate to that experience where as it's happening, it doesn't really hit you. And then later when you're out of the scenario, you think back and you go, well, I can't, can't even believe what I just saw and what I lived through. So that, that leads me to an important question. I I wanted to ask you, Tim, because the, the next phase of your career, um, as you told us in the beginning, you, you went on to get this further training in cardiopulmonary care and, uh, I believe you said you worked as a respiratory therapist. So were some of these experience and that horrific side of things, was that part of what pushed you to transition out of a, a field frontline kind of environment? Um, no, I, I actually was in a, um, I was injured in line of duty working as a firefighter too. So we, in addition to the medical, we'd have to go and do structural firefighting. Mm. Um, I ended up getting hurt and I had to retire medically. So I was vocationally rehabilitated to do a uh, respiratory therapist. Uh, there is some crossover between what I did as a paramedic and it was a way of, you know, me having a new uh, a career. And of course, you know, I've worked with lots of respiratory therapists and as a neurosurgeon, what we see happening is when we make the diagnosis of brain death or we're terminally extubating or, or something of that sort, it's the respiratory therapist and the nurse, right, that are there at the bedside at the at the time of death. They're the ones asked to extubate the patient or, or whatever. I mean, it's, it is, 
in some ways no less psychologically affecting, right? I mean, being a being a respiratory therapist, wouldn't you agree? That was I, I can say that that's really the only time that I felt like I and I understand I'm just removing from life support, but I feel like I felt like at times it was like I was killing the person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you, yeah. it, it, I, I've I sat there, it's just me and the respiratory therapist. Often the nurse would leave to go chart. Nothing against nurses, they're very busy, but but the respiratory therapist would look at me and I'd look at the respiratory therapist and it was it was a, it was a, almost a surreal, as you said, experience to be there at the moment of, I would call it designated passing of life, right? Something along those lines, maybe. Um, hard to know when that time really is. Um, but, but, you know, you brought it up already that it, it wasn't just psychological burden, but the physical burden, right? That, that these are jobs, the three jobs you've been in that exact a real physical toll as well. Yes. Um, so I can say, you know, between the military and fire department, definitely um, a number of musculoskeletal injuries, uh, spine issues. Um, and working in the hospital, I mean, that was that was tough. I mean, I, I spent 16 months or so working in the COVID ICU in the kind of beginning of the pandemic. And subsequently, last 18 months, I've been non-clinical. I've been working uh, uh, in the device industry. Well, Tim, I, you know, we, as, as we're drawing to a close here, and I, I want to talk about your work in the device industry and where you've, where you've gone since working in the ICU, but I just, for me, I have to ask because th there's this running joke and, and it's like a standard thing within neurosurgery when you're interviewing for residency and you're trying to get a job. It's the why do you want to be a neurosurgeon question? And it's everybody has their answer and it's the one thing you can expect at every interview. And I had this like glib joke answer when people would ask me, why do you want to be a neurosurgeon? I would say, well, somebody's got to do it. And I, you know, I'd try to make a little joke out of it and get past it and onto the interview. But it seems like these three careers and these phases of your life, you are, you have just one after another done the thing that, well, somebody's got to do it and no one really wants to. You served in the military as a paramedic in the fire department. And then in the, in the ICU, as, as you described some of the hardest part of your career, um, exacting psychological, physical tolls on your body. I, I can't ask you to speak for everyone in our nation who is as generous with their life to, to you know, give service in the different ways that you have. But maybe just speaking for yourself, wh what do you think it is that has driven you toward three very different but connected different careers where it's just putting yourself on the line and doing these incredibly necessary but incredibly taxing jobs it's service i want to help people it's like now with the nonprofit return to duty i helped found um it's we want to keep helping people yeah. And, and Tim, I, I, I do want to uh, put a plug out again for Return to Duty. We met you through Dave Simons. Uh, he, he has helped us connect with folks for this mini series. Uh, maybe you can tell us briefly about uh, how you see Return to Duty. You have a special role there, right? You have a particular role uh, as, as head of patient services. So, so tell us about what that role entails. And, and do you, is it that you connect patients who need care to physicians? I'm helping to facilitate the intake, um, gathering uh, the non-PHI type information. I'm kind of behind the scenes also 
um, we're using some computer programs to manage our patients. Um, any PHI, um, we are fortunate enough that um, the Dr. Messiwala at DISC in Southern California is allowing us to use their computer um, programs and their servers to manage any PHI and images that we anonymize. But um, I'm, I'm kind of making sure that a portfolio on each patient can be put together that includes, you know, good history and there any relevant images that can be then presented to our, um, you know, neurosurgical teammates. And we have um, also a, an orthopedic spine surgeon too as our one of our teammates too. That's phenomenal. Well, well, Tim, throughout this whole series, we're going to be uh, featuring different military and former military people now in, in the medical side of things that relate to neurosurgery. We're going to be pointing people towards return to duty. Um, we really appreciate your time coming on and sharing all these experiences. And I think your simple, direct message of service and helping other people is something that anyone listening to this show can resonate with. Um, if, if not, then you know, go listen to Fresh Air or something because the, any, anyone listening to this show should, should be able to agree with that. Um, so we want to respect your time. So Tim Fizikas uh, with Return to Duty, thank you so much for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast today. Thank you for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.